it always happens this way. There's always someone smarter, stronger, better, faster to do what I'm about to do. But sometimes you just got to take a step forward because nobody else happens to be. Hello and welcome to What's Next. I'm Joel Krogman and this is my show. This is a place where I talk with people who are building meaningful lives. Talk through challenges that they face, through taking risks, through failure, through success. The reason I started this show is because I get stuck all the time. I need encouragement and inspiration just as much as anybody else, if not more. So I'm hoping to find that through this show. This is episode three and One thing about setting out to do something is that there is nothing like making progress. Setting goals and meeting them is the best high. For whatever reason, that's something that I have had this belief about myself that I'm not good at doing. Because I struggle at times with self-doubt, with thinking that my dreams won't amount to anything or that I have nothing of value to contribute, that I'm just wasting time. So just getting the episode posted each week is a huge milestone for me. Today's conversation is with Jake Harriman. Jake served in the U.S. Marine Corps as a platoon commander in both the infantry and force recon. He's founded and led industry-leading nonprofit organizations, and really, he's just tried to dedicate his life to making the world a better place. Jake was a 2015 Presidential Leadership Scholar, a 2014 White House Champion of Change, a 2015 Goldman Sachs Top 100 Most Intriguing Entrepreneurs, and he is the recipient of the Unsung Hero of Compassion Award from the Dalai Lama. I met Jake through my work as a filmmaker, and back in 2015, I spent a few weeks in Kenya with him uh, while creating a few documentaries for an organization he started called Nuru International. He's now running a new organization called More Perfect Union with the goal of bridging the political divide that we are experiencing in this country We talk about his journey that led him into what he's doing now, and he talks about overcoming self-doubt that comes from stepping into the unknown um, when our internal dialogue and even the people around us are telling us that we have no business doing what it is that we're about to do. Um, Jake's a really cool dude, and I enjoyed our conversation. I just want to warn any uh, sensitive listeners that there are some graphic descriptions of, of wartime events in this conversation. Also, when we start talking about Jake's political work, some of that conversation is around Senate and midterm elections, and, and uh, this conversation took place before the midterm elections in 2022. Sound good? Great. Cool, cool, man. So you kind of began your adult life in the military, uh, focused, intense military experience. How'd you get into the military? Yeah, I I grew up on a um, little farm in West Virginia and we were poor by, you know, American standards, but I didn't know it as a kid. I mean, we, we, you know, grew everything that we ate and we hunted for meat and we had a cow for for milk and butter and chickens for eggs and all that kind of stuff. And, and I just remember learning a lot from my parents growing up from my mom. I learned a lot about compassion and mercy. She was always trying to, we were poor, but she said, you know, there's always somebody who's in a tougher situation than we are. And we always should be trying to help them. So she taught me a lot about compassion and trying to always help other people, serve other people. 
And my father was a uh, entrepreneur. He tried a bunch of different things. His main job was he drove the uh, school bus for the local school system. And he had started up a bunch of different, tried to start a bunch of different businesses though. And he just never gave up, you know, and, mm-hmm. and on the farm we would, uh, you know, I remember one time we were, we were uh, building fence and, and uh, he, we had to drive these kind of large locust posts into the ground. And so I was like six or something and I was holding the post. And my dad was standing on the tailgate of the truck and he was like driving the post in with a sledgehammer while I was holding it down beneath him. And I was terrified he was going <laughs> to miss that thing and hit me. Yeah. So I started crying and I said, you know, I can't, dad, I can't. And I sat and, and he kind of got down off the tailgate and lifted me up on it. He said, listen, son, he said, I, I never want you to hear you say those two words ever again. Hmm. I can't. He said, you can do anything you want in this world. You just have to put your mind to it and, and never give up. Hmm. And I just never uh, forgot those words. It seems like a really silly kind of insignificant story, but it really shaped the way I thought about things hmm. and gave me some pretty crazy belief that I could really try to do the impossible. And my dad was in the Navy, so he'd served four years in the Navy during Vietnam and he never really talked about it, but I remember every 4th of July, we would kind of get around, we had this little black and white TV, we'd get around the TV and and watch, uh, they used to do 4th of July parades. So we watched this thing on the TV and yeah. my dad would always like tear up and I never really, my you know, my dad didn't cry, he never cried, so I didn't know what was going on. And, but then I began to realize that, you know, he was really torn up. He, he had buddies in Vietnam who were Marines that didn't make it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my dad really understood the cost of freedom and it meant a lot to him mm-hmm. and he had, you know, he'd sacrificed to serve the country. And so as I got older, I began to think, well, maybe I should, I need to serve the country too. And I felt this kind of burden to do that, um, to kind of do my part. And I avoided it at first. I, I got into the Naval Academy when I was a senior in high school, turned it down because they told me I had to wear a tie and I had to be in the military for six years. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> really dumb. And I thought I was going to go with all my buddies who were going to West Virginia university. Cause I, you know, your, your high school buddies, you think are going to be your friend, best friends the rest of your life. And, yeah. and uh, you want to, so I, we all went to this to West Virginia university. And of course I never saw them hardly at all while we were there. And I began to really realize that perhaps I made a big mistake and that, you know, I had never seen anything in the world. I, we, we never had any money for vacation. So I never traveled. I've been outside West Virginia like once and I really wanted to see the world. I wanted adventure and excitement. And and I had this kind of nagging sense of call of duty that, you know, kind of kept uh, nagging me. Mm-hmm. So eventually I thought, well, I'm going to try to get back in to the Naval Academy. You know, I bought into all the posters. These guys, they show you the world, you know, I can go fly jets and be a Tom Cruise and all, right. all this stuff. So I, I applied to get back in and was real persistent to kind of use my dad's persistence and, got back in. They let me back in. So I, um, after my second year at WVU, I was able to transfer into the academy course. None of, they don't take any credits. They don't take any previous, you know, uh, college experience. So I had to start over as a freshman. I I tested out a couple courses, but you know, and so did four years at at Navy at the Naval Academy and, uh, studied systems engineering, uh, while I was there, which I never used ever after I graduated. And, uh, and I, um, (laughs) Played rugby was my sport there because I was too small to play football. And and it was uh, – I learned a lot of great lessons playing rugby. 
And then when I gra graduated uh, from there, I was commissioned as an officer in the Marine Corps. And so uh, in the Marine Corps, I, I, I selected for infantry. I wanted to be infantry. So I did infantry first for a while. I was with a unit called 3rd uh, Battalion, 1st Marines. And then uh, after that, I got selected for a group called First Force Recon, where I was a platoon commander for a while um, as well. And, and while I was in, I did um, a couple tours of combat in Iraq and then a few other places, Horn of Africa, other areas in the Middle East. And, uh, and yeah, that was, that was, I had a pretty um, intense experience, um, yeah. you know, while I was in that kind of opened my eyes to a lot of different things that I didn't know. How long were you in the military for uh, total? Seven and a half years. Okay. Were you sort of feeling fulfilled by it? Did you feel like you were kind of getting what you had gone there for? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, I, I, once, I once I actually got in, uh, I had no idea what I was getting into. But once I got in and I started realizing, you know, I started learning a lot about leadership. I started getting really close ties and bonds with my guys I served with. Um, you know, I love the mission. You know, serving the country and protecting, fighting to protect and preserve the the idea of America, really really brought me a lot of sense of purpose and drive, and so I I, I loved it. Things got complicated in combat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, when when the war kicked off, you know, the war is like it's one of the worst things we can do to each other as human beings. And you know, there's evil people. There's evil in this world. There's evil people that oppress innocent people, and those people need to, you know, we need to take care of those folks with our armed forces. But a lot of stories get written in combat. You just can't unwrite, you know. And yeah, and uh, I was on a path, you know, I was doing some stuff in kind of more and more selective groups. And the further I got in, and I was going to have to go, you know, be in areas and do things where I just couldn't talk about it with anybody. I couldn't have those connections. It was really becoming more and more impossible to think about finding a, uh, a wife, you know, a partner yeah, who, who I could build a relationship with. And, and also I began to see some areas that were incomplete in our strategy to defeat some of these groups, yeah, these violent extremist groups that we were taking or that we were trying to take out. We were going out there and like taking these guys out every night, but their movements kept growing. Right. And uh, we began to see what we thought was a gap in that national security strategy. When you first signed up for the military, was it kind of like, this is what I want to do for my life? This is, I'm going to be a career? No. Okay. When I first went in the Naval Academy, I, uh, I'd seen, I saw, I saw Top Gun, thought I was going to be a Navy pilot. <laughs> um, got in, quickly got rid of that idea. Uh, I, I learned a lot about humility at the mm -hmm. Naval Academy and in the mm -hmm. service. I, you know, when I got first got in, uh, I, you know, I got dinged because my eyes weren't perfect, so I couldn't be a pilot. Then I wanted to be a Navy SEAL, and and I, I trained for that. And there were uh, I don't know three or four hundred guys in my class who wanted those spots or fifteen spots for the class. And I think I made it to the last twenty. And then they told me I couldn't couldn't do it. They, yeah. I didn't I didn't make the last cut. That was a great lesson in humility. I was devastated. Hmm. But you know, Marine Corps are, uh, was also one of my top options. The infantry. You can't go into the special operations for the Marine Corps right out of the gate. You have to do time in the infantry first. So. Okay. I, uh, I wanted to do infantry and, and I was really grateful for that choice. I mean, I really think, you know, God must have had his hand on me, not going into the SEAL community first, but going in Marine Corps ground. And hmm. I just really found a lot of great brothers and, uh, and sisters that I ended up working with that uh, built these incredible relationships and, and uh, that I would not have had otherwise. And also that led me to this other group, Force Recon, and then 
other opportunities beyond that that I transitioned to afterwards that came as a direct result of those experiences. Yeah, yeah. And so while you were in the Middle East there, and, and you're on a mission there, there's a significant event that led you to kind of think about your life differently, think about you know, what the future might look for, like for you differently. Yeah, I, I, uh, during the Iraqi invasion, we were the, one of the lead uh, forces for the Marine Corps, kind of going up the gut through southern Iraq to take Baghdad. And our first major contact in the war was a place called Nasiriyah, where we got ambushed and we started taking fire and, and, and uh, had to push through the city and form a defensive perimeter north of the city where we had to dig in and wait resupply. It was uh, early, early morning. I remember that as the sun was about to come up, I got up out of my fighting hole to kind of walk the lines and check with my guys. Everybody was exhausted and scared and hungry. And and as I was walking the lines, I looked up on the highway and I saw this little white car racing toward our position from the north, which was weird because there weren't any vehicles on the highway at the time. Southern Iraq at the time was a, a, a really poor place as we had been moving through the south the regular Iraqi army was retreating to make a, stand, a final stand in Baghdad, but Saddam had been pushing his Fedayeen, these kind of special forces soldiers south, and they were going hut to hut in these rural villages, these poor villages trying to recruit people to fight us. They were basically saying, look, your kids are starving right in front of you. If you pick up a weapon and go fight these guys 10 miles south of here, you know, we'll drop off a bag of food here every, every little while and, and help out your family. And we were fighting those guys by the hundreds and thousands, those poor farmers in the beginning of the war. And that kind of set the stage for this event, this one kind of catalytic event. So I got up walking the lines, checking on my guys, this white car is racing toward our position. The enemy had just started using suicide bombing tactics where they pack explosives in the car and run it into our position and blow themselves up. And so, you know, I thought this was one of those suicide bombers. I grabbed three of my guys, took off running toward the car to get it to stop. Finally, the car stopped about 50 meters out and the driver hops out. And he's like waving his arms frantically and running at me. And now I think this guy's, you know, strapped to the bottom of himself. He's going to blow himself up. And uh, I'm yelling at him in Arabic and he's, he's just not stopping and he's continuing forward. Finally, I look behind him as I think I'm going to have to take him out. And I see this large black military truck roll up behind his little white car and six guys in black jump out. They run up to the car and they start shooting into the car. So this guy who had been running toward me stops dead in his tracks, starts screaming and starts running back to the car. And that's when I realized this guy was just one of those poor farmers who was trying to escape across our lines of safety because he didn't want to fight. And he had his family with him. So I was running as fast as I could to the car to help save his family. But by the time I got there, it was too late. My guys were taking out the Fedayeen. And by the time I got there, I looked in the passenger side. His wife had been shot in the face and in the chest. She was slumped over dead. He had a little baby in the back seat. Um, whose arm had been shot off and she was shot in the head. Wow. And then he was cradling the body of his little, you know, five or, or six year old daughter who's been shot in the stomach and, and uh, she was choking on her own blood as she was trying to breathe. Wow. And, um, you know, for the first time in the war, everything slowed down for me and I put myself in this guy's shoes and I just thought, you know, what, what choices did this guy have when he woke up this morning? I, I live in a world of choices. You know, where do I want my kids to grow up? What do I want them to have? What do I want them to have for breakfast? They got all kinds of choices. We have all kinds of choices here in America. And this guy had nothing. Yeah. He could watch his kids starve to death. He could strap a bond on himself. He could run into our position. Um, he had nothing. And so in that moment, I got really angry. 
And I thought, you know, it's not fair that the GPS coordinates of a person's birthplace dictate what choices they have in this world. And that was the beginning of a really powerful awakening. I began to see that through our, all of our ops, you know, uh, day after day, week after week, month after month, some of the same themes continued to come up. Like we, these groups, these extremist groups were actually doing aid work in these really impoverished areas. This was not just this deployment, but then after, after deployment. You know, these guys would go into these highly impoverished areas. They'd offer food. They'd build schools and clinics. And they were also horribly oppressive. But it was the only opportunities a lot of these farmers had to feed their kids. Well, they didn't have any other choices. And the yeah. aid groups couldn't reach these folks because it was too dangerous. Yeah. You know, so that's what led to kind of this big awakening that led me into a new, a new pivot. Yeah. So what did you, so what did you do? What was that pivot? I began to think like I was talking with my guys in the unit and we, we started talking about ways we could fix this problem. And, you know, we saw that like, you know, we got NGOs who are not trained to be in, in highly insecure places in combat situations who can't reach populations that live in this fragile places. And then you got military like guys like us who are trying to help in those areas, but we, you know, we're trained to take out targets. We're not trained to help farmers, you know, increase crop yields. So we had this idea, like, what if we could make hybrid teams? What if we could bring together former operators like us, combine them with frontline development professionals who know how to build sustainable solutions to extreme poverty. We could uh, form these composite teams and embed them in these highly fragile areas where other NGOs can't go. Uh, to be able to work with, and we could live there for five to seven years. We could work with local leaders to build locally led sustainable solutions to beat extreme poverty and build what we call resilience corridors to stop the spread of groups like ISIS and Al Qaeda uh, from, from continuing. And this is the way to round out the strategy to defeat violent extremism. It wasn't just about kinetic or, you know, uh, military action. It was about also meeting these, these needs of the families you know, where, where you had uh, that these lack of choices due to the desperation of extreme poverty. Yeah. And so originally your, your plan to do that was as a wing of the military or through the military? No, I didn't think it could be done through the military. Uh, okay. Because the military actually had us in villages trying to help, but you know, we're just not trained to do that. And, and um, it was really hard to be, you know, to be able to get the trust of the local leaders when you're you know, you're wearing body armor and you're carrying an M4. And, right, right. And we were only there for very, very short amounts of time. Yeah. Right. Uh, it was very difficult to build any kind of lasting relationships, let alone trust. So that military wasn't a solution. So, you know, I thought we needed to build this hybrid company. But, uh, but you know, I, I certainly didn't feel equipped to do so. Um, and uh, I was also kind of on a career path that was um, – it was a, a great career path in 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 the military um, that would allow me to kind of become even you know better and better at what I was doing and and to help kind of support and defend our country and and uh, in the national security space and so it was a tough decision but I was also nagged day and night I couldn't I go to sleep at night and I see this guy's eyes and it just it, you know didn't go away and yeah I kept seeing this problem that that uh, the NGO community and the military seemed ill-equipped to, to deal with, um, you know, this kind of nexus of development and security seemed, uh, nobody seemed to be filling that space very appropriately. And so finally I just 
I felt so compelled that somebody needed to do something about this. I, I decided to, when my time was up, instead of renewing, I was going to transition out. It was a really hard decision because I, everything, all I knew in life at that point was how to be uh, a Marine, yeah. you know, and do that mission. And I didn't know anything about the aid industry. I didn't know anything about fighting poverty. And so, yeah, it was a pretty scary notion, but you know, I'm a man of faith and I felt I, I prayed a lot about it. And I, I just felt that God really wanted me to move in this direction. I didn't understand why. I felt very ill-equipped to do so. Hmm. But uh, I felt the same way when I went to get in the military. Uh, I also felt very ill-equipped and didn't really know why I was supposed to go in the military, but felt like compelled to do so. And and so I just uh, kind of on faith just stepped out and told folks I wasn't going to re-up and I was going to make a transition. And you know, I told people what I wanted to do and you know, they just laughed at me. I was nuts. And but they, they wanted to be supportive. They saw the need. They saw the need. The need was real. They just thought I was nuts for trying to do it myself. Th- those are other people in your field who are in the military. Yeah, guys in my unit, stuff like that. Yeah. Family members, everybody thought I was kind of nuts. And uh, I remember when I first got out trying to figure out, okay, like, okay, now what do I do? Like, how do I do this? Well, I got to pay my rent. And I don't have any money. So... I drove a seafood delivery truck for a while to pay, <laughs> to pay my rent. I had a great uh, I had a great route in San Diego and Orange County and LA and huh. del- delivering to these restaurants and and I used that time to kind of think about how I was going to do this and did I did research at night to try to look at other organizations. I was trying to join an organization, hmm. but uh, nobody would hire me. They didn't like my background and. Hmm. So I was kind of like, you know, okay, screw those guys. I'll, I'll do my own thing. And I, so I bought this like silly book, you know, how to start your own nonprofit. And you were supposed to fill out all these work, worksheets. And it was kind of ridiculous. <laughs> and and I was kind of getting nowhere. And so I was talking to my buddy. I started getting kind of despondent. You know, I, was, I thought here I, here I left a, a, a career field where I was at the top of my game and on a great track if I'd stayed in. And now I was out and... I felt like I had no skills that were transferring into this new field. I had no experience in this new field that I was trying to get into. I didn't even know how to get into it. Hmm. I had no idea where to start. I was rejected time after time in these interviews and applications. You know, I was kind of like really lost. And my best friend at the time who had gotten out a while before me had transitioned. He'd gone straight to business school and he was able to get into Stanford Business School. And he was telling me, well, it looks, sounds like what you want to do is you want to build a company to do what you're talking about, to be able to build these teams and go into these really tough places and build solutions to extreme poverty. You kind of need to build a company to do that. And I was like, okay, well, I don't know anything about building a company. <laughs> it's like, well, I should go to business school. That's a good, a good place to start. They'll teach you how to do that. And, you know, I'd never taken any business courses. I, like I said, I was an engineering major in, in school, which again, I never used. So business school was daunting. And he's like, why don't you just apply to a couple of schools and just see what happens? So, you know, I'd heard of Stanford and Harvard. So I put those applications together and, <laughs> and I thought, I remember kind of making a deal with God. I said, you know what? If you really want me to do this track, you're going to get me into one of these schools. So I put the applications in totally just thinking it was a joke and uh, kind of went about doing my thing. I was driving the seafood truck and about three or four, six, five months passed. And I came back home one day and I had these packages on the front door and there were acceptance packages to both. I had somehow gotten into both Stanford and Harvard. And I thought, this has got to be a scam. Like there's (laughs) there's no way 
<laughs> but I opened them up and they were real. And I, I think they must have had a quota for <laughs> Marine from West Virginia or something. And so, yeah, I saw that as a sign. I'm like, well, okay, God, like, I guess it's game on. And yeah. so I went to, uh, I went off to business school to build a company. Yeah. Yeah. How old were you at that time when you left the military and started at Stanford? Let's see. I would have been doing some quick math here. 32. Okay. Other than your buddy who was like, sounds like business school is a thing for you. Did you, did you have anybody that you were looking to that was sort of guiding you or helping you walk through these decisions? No one. Everybody told me the opposite. I was crazy. I have no idea what I'm doing. What am I thinking? You know, you hear that enough. You're just kind of like, whoa, I'm, maybe I am really dumb. <laughs> maybe this is a colossal bad, bad idea. Huh. And I, I had no mentors in that field. I, I didn't know anybody in that field. All my military mentors were like, wanted me to stay in. They thought I was crazy for getting out. They respected me. Yeah. You know, they, they saw that there was a need for this, but, you know, they, they didn't say this, but they also thought I was completely ill-equipped to do it. Um, and I was wasting my time and talent by doing something that I had no idea what I was doing. Hmm. Yeah. I didn't have a lot of support. It sounds like part of how you overcame that resistance was drawing a line in the sand and saying, okay, if I get into business school, it's a sign that I keep going. If I don't get into business school, then what, what, what do you know what you would have done? Would you have? Well, I say it wasn't just that. I mean, like I, when I tell people about starting something new or making a transition, if you're going to move in a direction you don't know a whole lot about and it's scary and it's hard, you need to have what I call the get out of bed factor. You know, like even it wasn't just about business school or having doubts about myself or, you know, even once I got to, to, to Africa to launch the, the project, you know, I got like, I got malaria. I got attacked by thieves and safari ants and black widow spiders. I got struck by lightning. I got, it was like all this insane stuff happened that, that you know, just really was discouraging. <laughs> and, and like, you know, we went through drought, all kind of crazy stuff. And like, but, and, and even worse, like, you know, we'd have farmers die. We'd have staff die. Like, yeah. you know, you, you'd have days where you like, just, you just didn't want to get out of bed. You just couldn't get out of bed. And, so I always tell people, you got to have that get out of bed factor, that that thing in your stomach that's burning that will not let you quit. And for me, it was that farmer in Iraq. Hmm. You know, I saw his eyes every night I went to sleep and and I knew that I could not give up. I, it, giving up was not an option. I had to find a way to push through and make something work because I, I had to try to try to prevent that. I never wanted to see a look like that in another human being's eyes ever again, right? I wanted to try to prevent that from happening to other people, this kind of lack of choices that just was so unfair. Yeah. And I wanted to do something about it. I wanted my life to be about that. Hmm. You know, this freedom of lasting meaningful choices for everybody everywhere. Yeah. The seed of an idea becomes neuro-international. And um, so so why don't we just talk a little bit about what what neuro is and, and, um, you know, how long you, how, how long it's been going on for now and, Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like an incredible organization with an incredible story. So, thanks. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really a, te- a testament to my team and the the leaders on the ground that kind of came behind this. And so, Nuru is like a it's a new approach. It's it sits right at the nexus of security and development. And the goal is to we go in and kind of act as the as the scaffolding. We're, we're the enablers. We're the trainers that we work with local leaders to build a locally led organization that designs and implements innovative and sustainable solutions to extreme poverty. 
in that in that region in that area, with the goal of giving people lasting meaningful choices. So they're not faced with these alternative kind of bad or lack of choices, right? Where they're they have bad actors coming and offering things that they have to take because they don't have any other choices, right? So yeah, there was always about all about giving people those choices about allowing them, uh, restoring agency, giving them hope, giving them control of their future again. And it's in a, at the epicenter, it's really about fighting back extreme poverty in a way that's lasting, but not doing it as outsiders, doing it as partners of the community where they're driving everything. So that when we leave in five to seven years, we leave behind a strong, healthy, locally led organization that's not only surviving, but thriving far better than it did when we were on the ground. When we talk about like chasing down dreams, we have this romantic notion about it, but it's so often like just like this perseverance that's required to overcome so much uh, adversity. I'm a big, I mean, I'm a big believer in, in big dreams. You know, I think big dreams change the world and, but you've got to have substance behind those dreams. You have to have drive perseverance that get out of bed factor yeah, that's that's something that you can lean on when times are just awful. You know, dreams aren't like hobbies, right? I mean, uh, you don't want to throw your life into something as like a hobby, right? It, it's like if you're going to do something big, understand that it's going to be really hard and it's not going to be fun a lot of the time. But if it's worth doing, it's worth doing, right? And you got to make that 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 decision on your own. And just understand that when those bad times come, remember that the good times are way worth it. They're way uh, better and more important than the, the, the tough times, even though the tough times sometimes are more, uh, there's more of them. But the, but the good times and the rewards that, that you will experience are far better and, and very, very worth it. How long has Nuru been going for? 13 years. Nuru has been going for 13 years. We launched in uh, 2008 in our pilot project in Kenya, and we've been growing since that time for 13 years. What it has become is honestly, in spite of me, <laughs> um, a lot of the mistakes and when I made in the early days and a lot of the flaws and weaknesses I have as a leader, um, it's really in spite of that. It, my, I have an amazing team uh, and the leaders, both the, the local leaders that worked with us to build out the organizations uh, my my U.S. team, um, they're just incredible individuals who were able to like accomplish the impossible, you know. And over the years, Nuru's become one of the one of the premier organizations at the nexus of security and development. And it's been an incredible privilege to kind of be along for the ride. And and uh, we go into places where most most other NGOs can't operate, and we work with local leaders to build out strong locally-led organizations that can address the most critical challenges causing extreme poverty as a way to help provide meaningful choices um, in some of these areas that, that prevent them from feeling like they need to harbor or support any bad actors that are also trying to provide choices, folks like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, etc. And we believe this is a critical component of the global security strategy against some of these these negative actors. And the organization's grown a lot. To, uh, the team has raised over $60 million now to date and in, in three countries. Uh, we've exited two projects successfully, Kenya and Ethiopia, the, both Nuru Kenya and Nuru Ethiopia are up and running uh, and thriving and scaling now uh, by leaps and bounds on their own. And uh, within those countries, impacting thousands of families and 
The project in Northeast Nigeria has won a lot of awards and the team there, the, the Nigerian team is just incredible, really taking the taking the project by the reins and, and started to grow it. And it's it's right in the heart of kind of a former Boko Haram and ISIS caliphate territory there. And hmm. and it's uh, it's been incredible uh, to watch the organization grow and the impact. Yeah. From what you had originally thought of, did Nuru sort of become the dream? Yeah, it took a long time. I, I think in the beginning, you know, we were working in Kenya. I wasn't really focused as much on extremism. There was a little bit of that, you know, um, and there was a little bit of, you know, folks with, with no choices opting into more nefarious operations and stuff to make a little, little, bit, of, little bit of money uh, to provide choices for their families. But, but nothing like we saw kind of in later years. And uh, it was a pretty amazing first few years diving into the international development space to try to earn our chops there and try to understand how to do locally led development. We had a theory that, you know, it was all about leaders and that leaders could really create the change and that we had to create these self-sustaining entities that could really thrive on their own, that could be really independent of Westerners, you know, and uh, that took a long time. It took seven years to exit the first project five to the, on the second, you know, and, uh, but I'm, I'm really humbled by where the organization is now and the, where the team has taken it. And it's, um, it's been fantastic. And, and I think it has become what I had always dreamed of it being, you know, we're right now in Northeast Nigeria, as I mentioned, in former Caliphate territory and, and getting ready to scale into the Sahel in, in Northern Burkina Faso and, and, where ISIS and Al-Qaeda or JNM are also heavily present and working in areas where other groups can't work. So it's kind of exactly what I, what I had dreamed of trying to build when I was thinking about transitioning. But of course, at the time, I had no idea how to do that. You know, I know that you've now decided to, to make another change in your life. You stepped out of the leadership role at Nuru and you're doing something new now. How did that idea uh, first creep up in your mind of there's something pulling at you that maybe your life is going to is going in a different direction right around the time when Nuru was really starting to do what you had really <laughs> kind of dreamed about in the early days yeah it was very bittersweet um, about the time I left or was getting ready to leave we were able to help pass a major piece of new legislation called the Global Fragility Act that changed the way the US government addresses highly fragile states and opened up incredible opportunities for Nuru to begin scaling into these highly fragile areas. So you would think that I would I would have stayed and after all these years we're finally there and you know really taken off and they're actually doing amazing. Mm-hmm. I think they just had to get rid of me. I think that was the problem. <laughs> but I think my my shift started happening in 2015, I was invited back to the U.S. uh, to participate in this new program that President Bush and Clinton were starting called the Presidential Leadership Scholars Program. And, you know, before that, 15 years before that, I I hadn't lived in the States. I I hadn't lived in the States for 15 years. I always deployed as a Marine. And then uh, with Nuru, I lived in the villages where we operated for seven years. And I remember coming back to the U.S. for this program, and I was just shocked by what I saw. Like I, I didn't recognize the country I left to fight for in 2000. I kind of felt like the old adage about the frog and the bo- boiling pot of water. You know, I was watching 
this frog getting boiled and nobody seemed to really see it hmm. or understand how bad it was. And I got really sad. All of us had been downrange fighting for this idea of America only to realize when I got home that it wasn't going to be ISIS or Al Qaeda that defeated us. You know, it was actually going to be us. It was going to be political extremism here at home. It was going to tear us apart and, and end our democracy unless we got in front of it. So then I got really angry and I thought, you know, it actually doesn't matter how much great work we're doing downrange overseas. If the light of American democracy goes out, the, the world would lose a great hope and a, and a potential light for the world. And and so I became really torn. I, I, I saw this thing I'd built with my own two hands over 12 years, really starting to, it had been growing, but really starting to step into its own as one of the, if not the premier player in that space. And I was thinking about leaving. And I think this is, um, there's been a few like major turnings in my life where I have felt a call in a new direction that uh, was kind of unexplainable and irrational. And it was in a direction where I knew very little about. Uh, you know, there was when I got into the military, you know, when I went to the Naval Academy, that was probably the first one. I didn't know anything about the military. I honestly had no idea what it would mean to serve the country and what would need to be sacrificed in, in doing that. Hmm. But I just felt super compelled that that was the right thing. Yeah. In my personal beliefs, I believe that God kind of calls us in different directions. And anyway, that was the first one. Second major turning was when I was, well, I've already talked about in combat when I met that farmer and, and began to, to feel this pull to, to leave and start Nuru. And the third one, the uh, major turning in my life has, was this experience when I came back in 2015. Like I just, I saw what was happening in the country and just felt overwhelmed with sadness, you know, and a growing kind of rage that, that this could happen and how could we have let this happen? And yeah. And uh, a rage at our political leaders, a rage at our, at, at media celebrities, what they were doing to the country that I love so much. And, and so I more and more felt super compelled that I needed to do something. And I had no idea what I was going to do. Uh, I had folks who wanted me to run for office and that just wasn't a good fit for me. Uh, I didn't want to do that. Um, and, you know, I kept, I kept having people in my life coming in and telling me that I needed to get into this space. You know, that I had some investors come along and said, hey, look, we're shifting all of our philanthropy into this new space to try to help build a center in American politics to help the country heal, uh, heal this divide, this tearing us apart before it's too late. You know, we've got some funding but we don't know what to do. There, we don't see any organization that's really able to tackle this at a systemic level. You know, we believe in you as a leader. We saw what you did when you disrupted the aid industry with Nuru, you and your team. And we'd love for you to take a look as an outsider again at this politics industry and see if there is if there's a way to disrupt it hmm. to build out this center. And again, I I knew nothing about politics. I had never thought about politics ever, never taken a course. Just like when I you know, left the military to go start Nuru, I knew nothing about business or companies or poverty or, or alleviating poverty or development work. In this case, I knew nothing about politics, political science, political science theory, how to start movements. Like I, I didn't know any of this stuff, you know, and yet I felt super compelled that that I needed to do something. And I, you know, I, it always happens this way. I'm always the, I'm, I'm never, there's always someone smarter, stronger, better, faster to do what I'm about to do. But sometimes you just gotta 
take a step forward because nobody else happens to be. And there's a lot of people working on a lot of things, but in this, I, I ended up doing about four months of research to try to understand what was going on in this space. And in the beginning, I just like with Nuru, in the beginning, I wanted to join another organization. I thought, well, there's surely there's somebody else out there working on something or building something that that could really address this key challenge at a systemic level over 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 many years. And I just didn't find anything that was inspiring, or, uh, or frankly, that wanted to hire me. <laughs> um, and so, uh, as I was doing my research, I, I began to see what I thought was a real market gap. So I put together a, a white paper. Uh, to, about what I thought could be done. And I've sent that around to a bunch of these people, investors and a bunch of my mentors. And you know, I had like, you know, Jim Mattis and John Allen and President Bush, a few others look at it and give me some feedback on it and encourage me to do it. And uh, so then I was kind of in a conundrum. Like I, I had I had this idea. I had people who wanted me to do it. I had some people who wanted to fund it. But here was Nuru. I mean, about to really take off and do all the things I'd ever dreamed of it doing. And uh, I felt like I needed to leave. <laughs> and it was just super strange, just like it was when in my military career, I was at a point where I, my military career was really taking off too. I was going into a world where, you know, I was good at what I did and I, I, I really felt comfortable there and, and was beginning to get in more impactful units and things like that. But uh, I just felt compelled to go to jump into this like highly unknown, uncertain area that I knew nothing about. So it doesn't make any sense. And it didn't make any sense when I did this. Like I, I literally knew nothing about politics. Uh, and so I, I just thought, well, I just knew it was the right thing. Yeah. So I, I put together a plan and I also was super passionate still about Nuru and the national security problem. It was addressing global security problem. It was addressing, and I knew that it had to thrive and I was worried about the transition. Founder transitions are really hard. And, and many times this, the organization doesn't survive. Um, so we put a really deliberate process in place and took our time, you know, it took about 12 to almost 18 months to do it the right way. And the new CEO is just an incredible leader. I, I had the privilege of working with since almost since I started it, I started it in 2008 and he joined in 2009 and he's the guy who actually built the real, he's the guy who actually built the model, um, for Nehru, um, Ari Shangala is his name and, yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah, yeah. He he just he really he took I mean and he stepped in and the team was ready. He was ready. Everybody seemed ready. And I began to also see it's a little bit bittersweet too, because I began to also see that Ari was a better choice to lead the organization at this point. Hmm. His skills and his background and his talent and knowledge lined up much better for where the organization was going than mine did. And it's hard to wrestle with that as a founder when you grow to a point where you realize you're not the best person to drive the ship anymore. How did you wrestle with that? How did you come to terms with, uh, <laughs> I can imagine the ego would fight that, you know, want to prove that wrong. Yeah. Well, I mean, humility is always a, a, a key character trait that I admire and aspire to in leadership. You know, we're, at Nuru, even we, we trained a lot on servant leadership. It was a core focus of what we did. Now I mess up, I mess up all the time and I, you know, my ego does get in the way a lot and all these things, but I really understand the value of humility and leadership. And I understand that if I really cared about the mission and what the organization was created to do, that I needed to get out of the way. 
and let the organization do it. Hmm. And if I cared about me and people knowing who I am or getting recognition or pats on the back or being seen as the guy did this or the guy did that, then sure, I I should stay. But, you know, I also, the organization would not have been able to grow like it has now under the new leadership. And that would have been a terrible, selfish decision. And so it was, it became very clear, uh, even in the transition. I mean, it was amazing. Everything from, you know, team surveys about the culture and team and all this kind of stuff, like under Aries leadership, the team is really thriving. I mean, they've got a super positive culture. Everybody loves being there. I'm not saying everybody hated being there when I was there, but I'm just saying like, it's a really healthy culture under this new leadership and they're really well positioned to do what needed needs to be done in this next step. Yeah. That's, that's cool. Were other people around you saying you're crazy again to do this or was it? Yeah. I mean, most people thought it was, I was nuts again. I'm used to being (laughs) called crazy. (laughs) So that doesn't really faze me anymore, but yeah. Um, but, you know, everybody from – there were a couple donors that I really respected in the development space that have become kind of mentors who really, you know, they were like, I, I just don't understand why you why you want to do this. And, you know, it doesn't make any sense. And that, that, that kind of hurt. I was just like, you know, when your mentors are kind of like questioning the direction you're going and people you really look up to and respect, it's hard. Yeah. When you kind of start doubting yourself a little bit. Um, so what do you what do you do what did you do in that like how did you sort of recenter yourself or I mean I had to keep coming back to the reason for why I was doing what I was doing like when I transitioned out of the military I had a lot of leaders I respected who wanted me to stay in but I had that kind of core reason for why I felt compelled to transition your uh, reason to get out of bed in the morning get out of bed yeah the get yeah. out of bed factor right so I kind of had that same factor now I mean. And for me, the thing that tipped me over the edge, really, um, as I was trying to make this decision, was uh, my daughter. So I, I um, in 2015, when I moved back to the states, I met an amazing woman. She had a daughter. You know, I fell in love, and I, I, I tricked her into thinking I was a good guy, and um, <laughs> and uh, and so when we, you know, we got married, and the more I fell in love with them, the more I began to see that she might not have a country to inherit. And a lot of the choices that I had growing up and my ability to achieve my dreams and the visions that I uh, created were not going to be there for her. Those opportunities were not going to be there for her. And the freedoms that I enjoyed might not be there for her. And the country and the world had become a pretty ugly place. And I didn't want that for her. You know, Hmm. I didn't want that for her. And I looked around, I didn't see a whole lot of people that I believed in that were doing something I thought could fix it. It's that whole thing, that whole saying, if not me, then who, right? I mean, yeah. you can't always wait for some other leader to step forward and try to solve a problem. If you do that, that's how bad things happen. That's how autocratic, autocratic regimes come to power. That's how companies die. That's how people die. That's, you know, there's lots of bad things that happen when leaders sit on the sidelines waiting for somebody else to step out and take charge. and and it's not just about taking charge. It's about, when I say leading, it's not about controlling or using authority over people. It's about showing what's possible, hmm. right? Showing people that it's possible. People want hope and real leaders give people hope. 
and they do it by action. They don't do it through words, you know. So in a crisis, when there's really these bad things were happening, and I, my daughter, I, I couldn't look around and say, "Well, I'm hoping that this guy we're going to elect is going to take care of things," or "I'm hoping that you know these community groups that are out here are going to try to pull the community." I, I, I couldn't wait. You couldn't wait. That things were getting worse and worse, and and I, I, I needed to do something. So, so what is what is uh, more perfect union doing? What is the what's the mission? Well, we have two goals. So, more perfect union is designed to help the country heal, heal the division that's tearing the country apart, and then build a center out in American politics that makes the government work for the people. And so, there's two strategies uh, to do that. We have a public facing side of what we do, and then we have more kind of under the radar covert side. The public facing side is we're building out this movement. It's a veteran led movement with the vision of being the next generation of civic organization, like Rotary, Kiwanis Club, Alliance Club. Those are all sadly in decline. We need a new generation of civic organization where, you know, millennials and Gen Z folks can come in and, and help own their democracy, help own the country. And the vision is veterans are the last trusted institution in the country. Veterans will be the force that founds and leads and, and, and convenes American citizens into these chapters but citizens from the left and the right together with the sole focus of doing community service projects. Hmm. It's all about community service, right? So the idea is we get our hands dirty together. We eat, uh, break bread together. We, we have conversations, tough conversations that are facilitated through training about what it means to be Americans, you know, and, and that, that there are so many more things that, that unite us than divide us, that our differences are actually our strengths, right? All these kinds of things. And, we want to build this kind of movement of millions of Americans who want change and reform and healing. And so that's the movement component. Then uh, the other side, the political strategy, because we, we uh, in my mind, a movement of Americans is important. You can't run a political strategy to try to fix the, the American political system absent the American people, because then it's just doomed to fail. So the political strategy starts in 2022. We're, we're actually trying to get three to five country first candidates elected into the U.S. Senate to form a powerful fulcrum in the center that will work together to get things done. So they will run as Republicans and Democrats, but once they get in, they'll vote together as a block on key common ground issues that Americans want to see get done. Our vision for that is once we get these kind of this foothold in the Senate, then every cycle in 24 and 26, we do this again. We get more folks like that in. You start building out a critical mass in the center of the Senate. Other moderate senators who are or center right, center left senators who are currently there will migrate to join the fulcrum and start voting with them. So then you either have a moderate faction form up on the left and right within the Senate that is the body that that really negotiates and and does uh, does the cross-partisan, bipartisan work in, in negotiation and compromise to get real things done. Or mm -hmm. if the parties refuse to reform, you'd actually have a viable platform for a third party to emerge but from within the Senate, not trying to do it from the outside. The Senate is split enough that that fulcrum in the center would kind of be actually able to influence things one way or the other. A lot. Yeah. And eventually you want to build enough of a, uh, a, a critical mass to overcome what's called a filibuster, which is you need 60 senators to be able to do that. Right. That's cuts. That's awesome. So you're chasing down this change, and you're getting out of bed with that same kind of energy you had with with Nuru. I do because all you have to do is like read the news each day. <laughs> Things are getting worse and worse, and I'm feeling more and more grateful that I'm in this new fight. Um, in many ways, too. I mean, there is a common thread. 
I mean, I, I, I have always fought for the freedom of meaningful choices for people uh, equally across the board, everybody, everywhere, whether it was going in the military to protect the freedom of, of meaningful choices for people here at home or starting Nehru to protect the freedom of meaningful choices for people in really desperate, vulnerable situations. We're now trying to protect the, the freedom of lasting meaningful choices for all Americans as our democracy is being threatened of with extinction. So uh, there's always been that common thread, even though if you look at my career, it looks like none of these things seem to match, right? I mean, how does the military relate to po poverty alleviation relate to politics, right? Yeah. Uh, but but there is a common thread. Yeah, I, totally, I definitely see that. I was thinking about that as well. Um, and you, you sort of, that that really kind of comes from your from your father, right? From from seeing your dad and how he lived his life and the values he instilled in you. Yeah, dad and mom both. Yeah. Uh huh. Are your parents still? Are they still alive? Yeah, they're still alive on the farm in West Virginia. Okay, awesome. And do you are you close with them? Do you do you? Yeah. How do they feel about what you're doing now? Uh, they're they're kind of scared. I mean, I mean, I mean, they're they're glad I'm not getting shy anymore. Hmm. which is great. And they're glad that I'm not living in Africa anymore. So I get to see me more. They're scared because, you know, politics is nasty and it seems to be the heart of the disease that is breaking the country. So it's sometimes hard for them to tease out that I'm actually trying to break the system, hmm. you know, to fight that. But I mean, they're, they're always proud of me and they're, they're very supportive. You know, it's just, it's hard for them to wrestle with it sometimes. I think. Do you think about that for yourself? Like, how do you, how do you and how do you do the the politics game without you know how do you do it differently? I don't know how politics is normally run, so that <laughs> and I just I just stay true to who I am, you know. Yeah, I'm just I am who I am. I don't try to be something I'm not. Just basic stuff. Always tell the truth. Try to be humble. Try to pe treat people the way you want to be treated. Serve other people at every opportunity. I mean, just basic stuff that you know seems to be. And just always do the right thing, right? It's basic stuff that seems to be the core of good leadership and effective movements um, that seems to be kind of counterintuitive in this new field. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I just try to stay true to that stuff. That's awesome. Well, I, with the time that we've spent together, the conversations we've had and all that, I, I'm, I'm definitely excited about the fact that you're in this fight doing this work, putting your energies behind it. I, you know, I think we need people who value, you know, dignity and decency and integrity and honesty to be putting their shoulder towards pushing things in that direction. Cause yeah, it's been a, it has been an insane few years <laughs> Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, I uh, just, one last thing, Jake, um, with what you know now, all your years of experience behind you, what's that piece of wisdom you want to make sure that you would have had back when you were, you know, just going into the military or just deciding to do what would become Nuru? What would you say to encourage yourself? Don't be afraid. Yeah, love always conquers fear. Just always remember that. It's a good word. Well, thanks a lot, man. I, uh, it's awesome to chat with you. Wish yeah, we could too. wish we could talk more regularly. Hopefully, uh, we'll be doing something together again soon. But um, I hope so too. Yeah. Good luck with everything you're doing for More Perfect Union and for thanks the country. Much. And yeah, I appreciate that. And uh, good luck with the podcast too. I, I hope it really takes off.
Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot. I, I, yeah, just the fact that you're willing to do this is a huge encouragement for me. So thanks a lot. All right, brother. Okay. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate it. Thank you, Joel. Bye. God bless, man. You can learn more about Nuru by visiting nuruinternational.org. And you can learn more about More Perfect Union by visiting mpu.us. Both organizations are doing awesome work, and you can get involved with either one through their websites. The links to those sites can also be found on the episode description as well. Lately, with these conversations, the more and more people I talk to, the more I'm realizing how much of a bubble I live in. I mean, I knew that before, but I'm, I'm just consistently surprised by how many assumptions I make and how much more there is out there to personal experience and to the world than what I have contained in my 37 years. It ends up being quite humbling uh, to encounter that. Um, <laughs> there's, I'm hoping that with these conversations that as I, that I'm able to absorb some of, some of their experience in a way that I can apply to my own life. And I hope that by sharing it, it maybe could do the same as well with you. So that's it for this week. Thank you for listening and see you next week.